everybody, and welcome to episode 56 of the Enlighten Me podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Mackenzie, and I'm super glad to have you here. I hope you all had a nice Thanksgiving if you're located in the United States. And now it is officially December. The holidays are right around the corner. I can hardly believe it. And if you haven't listened yet, the Ethical Holiday Gift Guide came out two weeks ago. It is a long episode, almost two hours long, which is part of why I didn't do an episode last week, but it's also super long because we have so many great gift ideas for you, okay? Gabby and I put our heart and souls into this gift guide, and we really think you will come away with some great gift ideas for your loved ones if you listen to it. We have ideas for guys, for gals, for kids, and they're all ethical. So we specifically chose things like small businesses, minority-owned businesses, businesses where all their products are mindfully made, and they're just super fun gifts, if I do say so myself. I think we did a pretty good job. So make sure you check that out. But this week, I am here with a super exciting episode. This guest is someone who I've wanted to have on for a long time. We live in the same city, and he's really well-known in the community here, and you'll hear why. And I've really wanted to have him on ever since we moved here, and I thought now was the perfect time. So welcome Chris Singleton to the show. Chris is a husband, a father, a former pro baseball player, an inspirational speaker, and a children's book author. Today we're going to hear about his journey to being a speaker and a writer, which is something that he didn't always know he was going to do, but it was a journey after a tragedy that took place here in Charleston. And so today we're talking a little bit about that event, but really he's here today to share about racial reconciliation. This is something that Chris is extremely passionate about and that he believes God has given him as a mission field. We had such a great conversation, and we talked about what racial reconciliation really is, about some of the things that have taken place over the last several months, and about what he thinks about protests and police reforms, and really just all the things. I asked him all the questions. I didn't have a very scripted episode this time. I just wanted to let him do his thing, his inspirational speaking thing, and ask the questions as I thought of them. This is just part one of our conversation, so please make sure you're subscribed to the show so that you know when part two is available. And of course, don't forget about leaving a rating and a review. I'm donating money to two different charities, one of which is here in Charleston, for every review that I receive. When you leave a review, it also helps more people to find the show, and conversations like these, like this conversation that I had with Chris, are conversations that people need to hear, so I want more people to find the show. So please leave a review, leave a rating, and of course subscribe. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Chris. Okay. Hey, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's such a pleasure. You're someone that I've wanted to have on for a long time. Basically, since we moved to Charleston, I was like, Chris Singleton, got to get that guy on the show. So I'm very excited to have you on today. Um, Can you just start with introducing yourself for anyone who doesn't know you? Yeah, I'm Chris Singleton. I'm a a husband, a father, uh, an inspirational speaker, and a children's book author. In that order. So, yep, that's who mm-hmm. I am, and I'm, I'm blessed to be able to do the things that I love. Yeah, that's great. And uh, before you were an inspirational speaker, you were a baseball player, right? Yeah, I played baseball uh, growing up my whole life. I played high school, played in college at a Christian university called uh, Charleston Southern University. After I played there for three years, I got drafted by the Chicago Cubs um, and played a little bit in the minor leagues for about two seasons. And after those two seasons, um, I got released. And once I got released, I transitioned into doing what I do full time now. 
Okay, that's right. Yeah, I so I actually used to work at Charleston Southern, which is how I first heard of you. And you were you had graduated already by the time I started working there. But of course, everybody knows who you are. And now you work alongside my husband, you volunteer for his organization. So we kind of know each other through multiple paths, even though I don't know if we've actually met face to face yet, but I feel like I know you. <laughs> um, but yeah, and do you just have one child? I forget, son or daughter? Yep, just, just, just one little man. His name's CJ, Chris okay. Jr. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, all right, so yeah, why don't you just kind of start with sharing your family's story? Um, because obviously that has a lot to do with where you're at now, um, your mom's story, and yeah, wherever you want to start, I'm just going to let you share what you want to share. Yeah, so I always tell people the reason why I you know, started speaking and, and writing the way that I do now, it wasn't some you know dream that I had growing up. The only thing I wanted to do was play professional sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but after you know a tragedy happened with my family, my mother was actually murdered in a racially motivated mass shooting about five years ago. Um, June 17, 2015, mm-hmm. my mother, as well as eight other people, were murdered in a, a mass shooting by a guy who wanted to start a race for in the country. Um, and after that, you know, I forgave my mother's killer. And ever since that day, I've been on this mission of unity, of, of bringing people together of different races, religions, uh, cultures, skin colors. Uh, yeah, so that's that's where it all started. And, and after my mom was killed, I actually took in my little brother, my little sister. Um, both of our parents mm-hmm. passed away pretty young. And so I was a 20-year-old taking care of teenagers, trying to figure it all out at the time. But years later, I'm grateful and God's given me strength to be able to to carry that load and, and still do the work that I do now. And I'm so passionate about getting this message out. Yeah, that's such a powerful testimony, obviously. And I'm sure as people are listening, they're remembering this, hearing about this shooting five years ago. So can you kind of take us back to that time and tell us you know, as much as you want to about not not necessarily the day that it happened, but maybe kind of about the aftermath that came from it with obviously you forgiving the killer and, and sort of what took place in the city that we live in, just because I feel like that's something that is pretty unheard of, what, what happened here and how people responded to, you know, the racialized motivations that this guy had, if you want to share on that a little bit. Yeah, always, um, you know, I'm proud to say, you know, where I'm from and, and where I live, after my mom was killed, not only did, you know, I forgive my mother's killer, but there were other families that forgave him as well. Mm-hmm. Not every family, but there were a decent amount of families that forgave him for what he what he did to our, our family, our loved ones. And afterwards, you know, our community here in Charleston, South Carolina, you know, wrapped its arms around me, thousands and thousands and thousands of people actually walked together across our uh, our bridge that we have here and we had like a unity walk we all just you know locked arms and said we're not gonna allow something like this to tear us apart and so it was it was fantastic it was amazing it was what you what you want to see when tragedy strikes a community you want to see people come together and that's exactly uh, what happened here in Charleston yeah absolutely such a powerful story and a powerful image for everyone who is watching. Did you know you were going to forgive him from the beginning or what was that like for you, that like personal journey probably inside you to come to that place of being willing to forgive and wanting to be a part of a bigger story of reconciliation? I'm sure there were times that you were angry and didn't want to forgive him. So what was that like for you? 
Well, you know, what, what I say is crazy. And the fact that I know that, you know, there's more to this world than just what we can see with our own eyes is the fact that, you know, forgiveness was placed on me. It wasn't something that I was, was premeditated. It wasn't something that I thought about. It, mm-hmm. it, it never crossed my mind before. You know, quite frankly, the only thing I was thinking about was my my family, my brother and sister. We were grieving, right? I didn't mm-hmm. even, you know, think about my mother's killer at any point until uh, I forgave him. And I mm-hmm. think that while well, I know that that was put on my heart, like it wasn't just something that I that I thought I wanted to do or 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 could you know muster up courage to do. No, it was none of that. It was just literally God placing that on my heart. And and I at the time I didn't know why, but now I realize uh, the mission that the Lord has given me. Uh, with the power of forgiveness. And that wouldn't have come had he not placed that on my heart right after my mother was killed. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't even say that, you know, I had times where I was quote unquote angry, but of course I was upset. And I'm still upset to this day that my mom was taken away and the mm-hmm. reason why she was taken away. And that's kind of sparked my mission that I'm on right now. But mm-hmm. I think mainly it was just placed in my heart, right? I think God knew what he was doing in that time. And especially with me, because there's no way you could have told me that I would have forgiven my mother's killer. And then here I am, you know, five years later, and I still feel the same way. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. And so you've mentioned the mission that you're on right now a little bit and some of the things that you're doing with writing books and um, obviously speaking. So how did that start for you? Like you like you said, it wasn't something you'd ever really planned on doing. Were you just kind of asked to share the story a few times and you were like, hey, this is I, I, I could do this. You know, how did that start? Yeah, it's always uh, weird when you when you say you're a professional speaker because most people mm-hmm. think you know you do it you know once a, a month or once a quarter. Uh, mm-hmm. It's usually you know three or four times a week where I'll travel and share this story and, and my mission of unity to different high yeah. schools, middle schools, uh, corporate clients now and colleges. But I think it all started after my mom was killed. We had an we had an uh, E60 done on my life on, on, on my mother as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically about the story of forgiveness, about coming together in sports. And that mm-hmm. aired and millions and millions of people saw it. And so every now and then I would get somebody saying, hey, Chris, you know, we'd love to have you at my high school. You know, our athletic department would love to have you uh, speak and share your testimony in, in, in how your team came together, wrap their arms around you. Mm-hmm. And then I would say, you know what, that's not what I do. You know, I'm just trying to get drafted and play baseball. That's who I am. Right. So I just start turning them down, right? When people would ask me, hey, Chris, come speak to my youth group at my church. We'd uh-huh. love to have you uh, talk about forgiveness. I'd say, you know what, that's not that's not what my mission is right now. I'm just trying to get drafted and play baseball. Right. But then, you know, there I was at a you know small group at my college. I didn't go to this small group every every uh, week like most of the people did. But every now and then, I'd, I'd pop in when I didn't have baseball practice. And the message for our small group was, you don't have to be a pastor to spread God's word. And I saw that mm-hmm. and I was like, man, maybe that's, you know, God tugging on my heart to say, you know what, I need to start sharing this message that I have and this testimony that I have. And so I said, you know what, I'll give it a shot. So the next time that I got asked to speak, I accepted it. Um, it was an, it was mm-hmm. an engagement down in Florida. Obviously, you know, they said, we'll fly you down there. We'll fly your wife down there or my you know fiance, my wife now. Mm-hmm. And I took the engagement. And after I shared there. People were like, Chris, I don't know what you think your life is going to be uh, in the future. I know you're playing baseball, but this is what you need to be doing for the long haul. And so mm. after that, I just started accepting them. Right. And I think for most yeah. people, and I was the same way, I figured if I could just, you know, 
build a business <laughs> and structure business in a way that can continue to get speaking engagements. You know, I'll be able to make the impact that I want to make on the world. I'd be able to, you know, set my family up financially so we'd be okay. And I learned very quickly that in a business like speaking, uh, like writing, or just, you know, being in the world that I'm in now, it's 100% mm-hmm. God opening doors for you, right? You can do, you can send 10,000 okay. emails a day, but if it's not your calling, if God hasn't places on, on your life, I feel like it's extremely hard to do. And, you know, I prayed on it and I said, God, if this is what I'm supposed to be doing, then I can't do it by myself, right? That's not working. So, you know, the doors are going to have to be open other ways by you. Mm-hmm. And, and God answered that prayer. And, you know, I've been doing 60 plus engagements over the last three years. Uh, last year, 67. This year, I'll do over 80 despite the coronavirus. So, yeah, God's just blessed it yeah. tenfold. That's awesome. That's so, so cool. Yeah. So I want to talk about kind of your message that you go and share with a lot of people. I know you can speak on many different topics and things that you've learned through your journey, but specifically, I wanted to talk with you about racial reconciliation. I know that's something you're passionate about sharing on. So I guess, why don't you just start with, I I always say, I try not to make this like a political show, but I just want to know what from your eyes, like in your experiences, the past few years have been like, especially recently with several murders of unarmed black people. And I mean, just everything going on. It's been a really weird, crazy time with lots of things brought to the surface. But obviously, that's not just reserved to the past few months that's been going on for a long time. So what's it been like for you lately, just as a black man in the US who speaks on racial reconciliation and forgiveness? Yeah, I think uh, recently over the last, you know, six, seven months, a lot of people are, are starting to be more empathetic to, you know, people that don't look like them. Yeah. Uh, they're starting to open their eyes because you can't turn away. Mm-hmm. I think for a long time you could say, you know what, I'm just going to change, change the channel. I don't want to you know, talk about this or it makes yeah. me feel uncomfortable, so I'm not going to address it. But over the last six, seven months, you couldn't turn the channel. You couldn't look away because it was everywhere. And I know that upset some people that it was everywhere, but it's really good because then people really started to have to dig deep inside themselves and say, you know what, well, what are my unconscious biases or what, 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 what am I teaching my family that I shouldn't be or that I, I haven't been doing, right? Because I think in a time like right now, you can't be on the sidelines saying, I'm not this, I'm not that. You have to make sure that you are teaching and leading people, uh, whether it's in your household or in your organizations, to make sure that we're nobody's that way uh, that you have influence over. Mm-hmm. So that's some of the things that I've been seeing recently. And just me as a as a young black man, I always tell people, right, like we, we automatically think that no way this happens to people. Right. We know no, no way people think this way when they get pulled over. No way they get scared when there is a police officer mm-hmm. involved in certain things. And, and I always tell my, my brothers and sisters that are, that don't look like me. That is 100 percent true. Mm-hmm. Right. I wish it, it, it didn't make me uh, nervous. Right. I don't know if it's because of the media. I don't know what it is, but I do. Right. I have great friends. One of my uh, very good friends is an officer up up in uh, Fargo, North Dakota, mm-hmm. and we are very, very good friends. And I still, you know, feel that way when I get pulled over. When my wife gets pulled over, I get nervous. Right. So I, I just want people to realize that it's not something that people want to fake. It's just real life for people that look like me. 
Mm-hmm. It's not to say that I can't do great things in this in this life and in the world right now because I truly believe that I can. It's just that that fear is still there. Mm-hmm. So I want people to truly understand that, and that's some of the things that I'll share when I go travel to different you know colleges or organizations. Yeah, that's really really good to know. So I guess big picture, what would you say? And you know, you can share what you normally share if you're going and speaking at a school or whatever it is, but. This term racial reconciliation, a lot of people have obviously heard it, but maybe they don't even entirely understand what that means. So can you share what that means to you? And yeah, I guess what big picture of what that looks like? Yeah, well, I'd say it differs for a lot of people. So some people, you know, when you talk about racial reconciliation, they just think people coming together, right, and not thinking about what has happened in our past. Mm -hmm. Some people don't even like putting re in front of conciliation because they're saying, well, what are we, you know, redo, what was was right before or whatever Mm -hmm. it may be, right? So I think for me, what I want to see is people of all different, you know, races, religions, cultures, living in harmony, right? Instead of saying, I don't see color, you're saying, you know what, I see your color, but I celebrate you. I celebrate your culture. I celebrate where you're from. I celebrate your, the differences that we may have. Um, so that's what it looks like for me. I know it's tough. It's an uphill battle to make to, to try to drive out racism in the world because it's something that's sinful and it's in our nature, unfortunately. But that's my mission, right? That's my mission that I have with students. Uh, honestly, I have to speak a little bit differently about it when I share with students and just tell a bunch of stories and storytelling to make them engaged. Uh, mm-hmm. High school, you know, I can kind of, you know, keep it real with them and, and share what happened to my mom. And then when I speak to colleges and and corporate companies, it's the same way. But for me, I guess the overall theme of racial reconciliation is when I can look at somebody and and instead of or if I do have an unconscious bias about them, I can I I know that and I can address that instead of, you know, pushing that down and acting like it's not even there. That's number one. Number two is when I see somebody that's different than me or maybe, you know, doesn't speak the first same first language as me. I, I don't automatically assume certain things about them because I realize there are so many aspects in my life or things in my life that I simply can't control and, and were given to me, right? Like I didn't choose the first language that I speak, so I wouldn't judge somebody based on theirs. And so once we start thinking about those those differences, those things that you know people can't control but we celebrate, I think that's what racial reconciliation means to me. Hmm. Yeah, and I feel like what you're saying I don't think anyone, well, I shouldn't say that, but I would think most people would agree with you. Like, yeah, that that is how we should approach people, especially people we don't know. But it's obviously really hard to kind of overcome those internal biases or thoughts that we might have that maybe have been inbred in us for years and years or whatever, or especially for people who've grown up with no diversity around them and just, you know, haven't gotten exposure to any other cultures or anything like that so what what do you recommend like on a practical level for people to really dive into racial reconciliation if they're if it's something they're passionate about on like a at-home level like what what steps can they take to work towards this you know without just going out in the streets and saying like racial reconciliation like what does that look like at home yeah, so the, the first thing most people can do, and I think a lot of people are already starting to try to do this, is find out what those un- unconscious biases are for them themselves, right? So 
there's f- at least 50 different, you know, tests you can take online for free, different mm-hmm. things, different resources you can you can find that literally say, you know what, I didn't even realize that I was, you know, feeling this way towards a certain group of people, but now I see that I am. Now, I wouldn't bash myself on the head because of that, right? Because you had right. no idea. But now that you know, that's when you can start to work, you know? So instead mm-hmm. of automatically, you know, unconsciously thinking something to somebody about somebody, you can consciously know that you think that unconsciously and say, you know what, I'm, I don't want to think this way. So let me meet this person or let me uh, explore this different religion that I had no, you know, no clue about, right? So I think once we start doing things like that, that's a way we could practically see change in our own households. Number mm-hmm. two, and this is something that is so important to me, we have, we all have, you know, sisters, brothers, kids, parents that we can teach and reteach uh, because so many people, unfortunately, like you said, have been taught the wrong thing for generations, right? And there's nothing to be upset about. It's just what is normal for a lot of people. Like some people don't have the opportunities to meet somebody like myself that looks different than them, right? I just got back from uh, Northwest Missouri in a very, very small town, right? There's not a lot of people that look like me and mm-hmm. a, a dark skinned, you know, black man that's young and doing the things that I'm doing. There's not a lot of people that look like me or do or doing the things that I do. So they never had an opportunity to meet somebody like me. That's what I think is my responsibility and the mission that I have to go out um, and have these conversations with people that don't look like me. But that's not for everybody. Now, what I would say for everybody that's at home, like I said, you have sisters, you have brothers, you have kids, you have to be teaching them to love people no matter what they look like, mm-hmm. right? Because I think sometimes unconsciously we'll say, oh, okay, this is this is your friend or this is your uh, girlfriend or whatever it may be. Or what people will flat out say, you know what, I don't want you hanging out with people that are X, Y, and Z, right? Because that's real life and that we see that every single day with some households. I think that's something that we can do personally to make sure that we have we are bringing up our kids in a, in a diverse you know, environment while still keeping our morals you know, and ethically. We are still who we are personally, but allowing our kids and our family to, to open their minds to different things that we would have never even imagine uh, growing up because I think once we can do that then the automatic you know assumption about a group of people will stop because we've met those people and we realize hey I don't know why the heck I was thinking this but now I realize this is not who that who these people are yeah that's good yeah and you mentioned automatic assumptions about groups of people which has been taking place a lot I feel like during this pandemic maybe because of the media, and I don't just want to blame it on the media, but that's what a lot of people are watching, right, is the news and seeing all these stories of protests that turn violent or whatever it is. And obviously, that's something that stirred up a lot of controversy where people are saying, you know, it's sad that a black man was killed, but this is wrong. And so how I'm sure you've heard people say things like that. What's your response to that? Like, as someone who is passionate about reconciliation, do you agree with that? Do you think, you know, I guess where do you stand on on that in regards to a lot of the controversy that's gone on surrounding protests? You know, I think people people ask me this a lot recently, right? They'll say, mm-hmm. you know, Chris Charleston, you know, your city came together after your mom was murdered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why isn't this happening right now? Why aren't people coming together like what happened after you your mom was killed? I think, mm-hmm. number one, uh, there was no controversy when people talked about my mom being killed. They said, you know what? This is wrong. This shouldn't happen. But for mm-hmm. some reason, uh, what we've seen over the last you know, six, seven months, there's controversy behind it. When we know that yeah. wrong is wrong, right? There should be no 
it's black and white, right? It should be, we know what's right, we know what's wrong. There should be no gray in the middle saying, you know what, well, maybe if this person did X, Y, and Z, then may, no, there shouldn't be any of that, right? We, we know that it's wrong and people were killed and they shouldn't have been. So that is one reason why I think there's been a lot of controversy when there shouldn't be. We should call a spade a spade and say what, what's right and what's wrong. I have a lot of officer friends that say, you know what, Chris, for some reason, a lot of people are thinking X, Y, and Z about officers, about whatever it may be, which is definitely wrong. But at the same time, Chris, officers are able to call other officers out when they do the wrong thing. And that's what we've seen from time to time recently. And there's no question about it, right? But I think sometimes mm-hmm. people, we try to get in the middle and say, you know what? Well, I bet the officers are thinking X, Y, and Z. When in, in turn, they're not, right? They're upset about, you know, people making them look bad because they they truly serve and protect our, our, our cities and our communities. But when things go wrong, they actually say, you know what? This is wrong. And unfortunately, people are trying to make it more political than it is when you should just call a spade a spade and say something is wrong uh, when it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so basically what I'm hearing from you is that you can still think this is wrong and that this shouldn't have happened, but not be anti-police, right? Yeah, of course. Like I said, I, I, I'm the furthest thing from anti-police, right? Mm-hmm. I think it'd be you know chaos if we didn't have some of my brothers and sisters wearing a badge and doing what they do. Mm-hmm. Now, with that being said, when people talk about police reform, I think people automatically think, oh my goodness, they're trying to get rid of the police. Yeah. Where in actuality, uh, a lot of officers actually agree that, you know, mental health isn't their job, right? So right. when they come into contact with people that have mental health issues, right, that's not their job. So when they're talking about, you know, defund the police and all this stuff, of course, they're not saying, you know, take all the money away from the police officers. What they're saying is, you know, maybe switch a line item for, you know, $500,000 to go towards counselors, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or towards uh, different people that are addicts to get them out, get them help. So what I think people automatically think when they hear the words, you know, police reform or defund the police, they automatically think that people hate the police and they don't want to have them anymore. Whereas some officers even are even saying to themselves, you know what, Chris, I understand where people are coming from because we don't deal with mental health. That's not what we do, right? Mm-hmm. We that's Unfortunately, we don't have somebody on staff that deals with mental health or deals with addictions the way that we, we maybe should. So uh, in turn, I can honestly say, you know, if we had a line item for this or we could contract different people that are, you know, psychologists or people that help addicts and or social workers, that'd be really, really good for our, our community. So uh, a lot of officers are agreeing with this. But of course, I don't agree that we should have less officers. I think we should have more because it, it is tough. And, and what they're doing is putting their lives on the line, which I, I totally commend them for every single day. So I think there's a lot of controversy when there should be a lot more meeting in the middle. And a lot of the same things that people want, uh, they want on both sides, which people right. don't understand. Right. Yeah. I think you're so right. And I couldn't agree with you more about I'm so thankful to have police officers and that we can call 911 and know that someone is going to be there for us. But I also think that, yeah, I think most police officers would say like, yeah, we need more support with when it comes to mental health or homeless people or, you know, people who they don't necessarily have the training to address and deal with or a place to take these people uh, besides either the hospital or jail, which someone with a mental health disorder, I don't think either of those places will really help them. So yeah, I think that's really good. And I'm glad that you shared that. When it comes to activism in this part, we talked about what it looks like to kind of address racial reconciliation at home. What about in public? I mean, again, that's something that's been controversial this year is 
do you go to a protest or all these protests are violent and turn into looting and destroying businesses, which obviously I don't think is true, but but that's been another controversial topic. So what do you think that looks like when it comes to public displays of racial reconciliation and, and kind of putting your words into action as far as activism goes? Yeah, well, I think there's a huge difference between protests and a riot, right? I want people to make sure that they understand the difference because, unfortunately, uh, we've seen some people automatically assume that a, a peaceful protest is a riot. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, it, if people are ignorant to the fact that they're two different things or or if, if they've been you know persuaded to think that a, a protest automatically leads to a riot. So I definitely want people to realize those are two different things. So... Uh, here, when I was protesting here in Charleston, we had a peaceful protest earlier in the day, right? We had a peaceful protest. I think there was a Black Lives Matter march. And so I attended that just to support and feel the pain of people and, and the worry that was in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the work that I do, obviously, I'm going to be there to to make sure things are okay and to you know use my voice if needed. So I stayed there for about probably about an hour and a half, two hours. Later on in the night, um, I see different things on social media where, you know, a riot has started, looting has started, X, Y, and Z has started. And so people automatically assume that people that were at the protest, which was hundreds of us, had automatically, you know, stayed for 10 hours and then were rioting at night, which wasn't the case. So I want people to realize there are people that are peacefully protesting that aren't rioting. Remember that. Just Try to get that in your heads. Number two, not everybody has to protest, right? That's not everybody's cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Like my wife, that's not her cup of tea, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So I don't think differently about my wife because she's not a pro- person that goes out and protests, right? That's just not who she is. I love her to death. That's that's my ride or die forever. Mm-hmm. But that's not the person she is. So I, I say, okay, but what she can always do is say, you know what, Chris, I don't agree with X, Y, and Z, but I'm, I support you and your mission to bring unity about, about for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. Equality about for everybody. So she doesn't have to go out there and have a bullhorn, bullhorn, enchant things. That's not who she is. That's not her personality. But she can always shoot her husband or shoot her friend a text that's doing work with, you know, the grassroots nonprofits in our areas or whatever it may be. Not it doesn't even have to be a protest. It could be something that you're just, you know, constantly volunteering at different things, uh, such as, you know, for me, yesterday I was at the uh, Low Country Orphan Relief here in Charleston. And so when she sees me do something like that, she Maybe that's not her personality to go out there and do those things because she's more of an introvert, but she can always support me in doing so or support somebody else in doing so. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is it's the same for people that are, you know, fighting for equality, fighting for uh fighting against the racial injustices that we've seen or the systematic uh, racism that we've seen throughout our history, which is unfortunately true. You don't have to be a scholar on these things. You can just say, you know what, I see you doing what you're doing and I support you. And let me tell you, that goes a long way, especially for a person like me, that all I do is pour out love and pour out my time, my energy into this mission of bringing people together, no matter what our differences are. It's a tough thing and it's draining. So when somebody shoots me a text and says that, you know, they say they encur- they're encouraged by what I do, it goes a long way for a person like me. So you don't have to be marching or doing chanting or whatever you may think you need to do to support a simple text is somebody that is doing those things or that is volunteering consistently uh, for an organization that you believe in. That goes a long, long way. Hmm. Yeah, that's really good perspective and good to know. And you're someone who obviously we really respect your opinion, especially on this because of your experience with activism and just using your voice to 
stand up for what you believe in, so to speak. And I know when after the looting had happened in Charleston, my husband was really kind of torn up about it. Like, obviously, that makes him super sad to see people feel like there's a need to get violent. But we also know that there had been a peaceful protest. And so you were the first person he reached out to. He's like, what do I what am I supposed to think about this? And so I know we just really respect where you stand on these issues. And And I wanted to ask you too, I know, so I've seen you speak before. I'm trying to remember what event that was. I I don't even remember what it was called, but it was essentially a racial reconciliation event. And there were several speakers. There was a panel and you were one of them. And another speaker that was there was the mayor of Charleston. And I think he introduced you. And I thought that was really cool just because I'm assuming most people that are listening aren't in Charleston, so they probably don't know, but he's an old white man. (laughs) Um, And he just clearly had so much respect for you. And so I wanted to ask you, obviously, you're very well known in this community and well respected. So do you have a relationship with leaders in this community as far as like the mayor and uh, other, you know, leaders? And if so, how has that looked like for you to be able to kind of, again, have another way to put your words into action and sharing with them your thoughts on things? Yeah, I think that if you're passionate about something and your community knows you're passionate about something with me, my message of, of unity, right, of getting people of different races and religions and skin colors to live in harmony, uh, teaching that to kids. If you're passionate about something and you are actively doing something around what you're passionate about consistently, I think that people in your community, you're going to find those leaders. You're going to find the people uh, in power that can make change, um, that can help you make change. You're going to find those relationships start to happen organically, mm-hmm. right? So I'll give you an example. Like if you are just a, a gardening officiant, like that's what you do. You garden every single day, right? That is who you are. You're a gardener. What do they call it? A green thumb. Like that's who you are. You're always at Lowe's, Home Depot, right? In the garden section. Everybody knows you because you always garden. Like you're, eventually you're going to find out the people in the community that are, you know, in, t- in, in charge of the agriculture in your community or whatever it may be, or in charge of making sure that we keep, we're, <clears throat> we're recycling and keeping things clean in our, in our society. So mm-hmm. I think if you are literally passionate about something and you go about it every single day and that's who you are genuinely. And people see your heart purely for the thing you're passionate about. I think you'll start to have those relationships with people in power. Like I had, like I have with our mayor now, like I have with certain with different leaders in our community, just because, you know, I, I, I've had opportunities to, to move away from Charleston, but I love where I live and I want to serve uh, this community where I live, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, selfishly, you know, I think we need more African-American men that are affluent, that are doing well, that have impact, that have influence, that maybe are doing well financially in this community because we don't have enough of them. So I mm-hmm. want to be one of those people that say, you know, I could move to Atlanta and do X, Y, and Z, or I could move to Orlando or whatever it may be, but I want to be here in my city so people can look up to me in 15, 20 years in doing that. But yeah, I think that the relationships that I've made have just been organic because I'm genuine about this mission that I have and people see that it's not just fluff. It's something that I'm truly passionate about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. That's so cool. And we are glad to have you here. I know what you're thinking, and don't worry, this conversation is not over yet. This is just part one that you're hearing, and part two will be available next week. I'll be back with Chris to talk more about racial unity, including some topics that people have a lot of questions about, like white privilege. 
I learned so much from Chris, and it's such an honor to share his story with you, and I know that you learned a lot from him too. One thing that you should absolutely do coming away from today is to take an implicit bias test if you haven't taken one before. Those were the tests that you can take online that Chris was referencing, and I will put a link to a few different ones that I've tried in the show notes, so please check them out. Learn about what biases you may be holding subconsciously, and let it teach you. We all have them, okay? None of us is perfect. It's just a human nature thing, but let's be aware of them because that is one huge step to racial reconciliation. You can view the show notes on whatever app you're listening to, or you can visit my website, which is heartfelthippie.com, and find them there. I love that in this conversation, Chris gave us things that we can do that aren't just protesting. We all have our own talents and gifts, and we can use them in different ways to be the bridge to racial unity, no matter what your comfort level is, okay? Whether you want to be at home or whether you want to be out in public, there are steps that you can take. So thank you to Chris for giving us some action steps. And like I said, he'll be back next week with even more, okay? You're going to learn a ton, so please make sure you tune back in. Don't forget about leaving a rating and a review for the show so that more people can find this conversation and hear about racial reconciliation. And also subscribe. It's just one click to subscribe. It's totally free, and it ensures that you'll get every new episode that comes out, including part two with Chris next week. There will also be an Enlighten Me mini episode that comes out between now and then, so just a short little episode that will release on Monday, so you'll get two episodes next week. Woohoo! All right, friends, check out the implicit bias tests that I'm linking for you. Think about what action steps you can take to help with the mission of racial unity, and keep seeking to get enlightened. Peace out!